Today is a special episode. We're releasing a classic conversation between myself and the eminent psychologist and philosopher John Verveke. Previously, this conversation was only available on the STOA app, but we are going to release it and a number of other classic episodes over the next few months. So you'll be receiving a few bonus conversations now and again. Without any further words of introduction, here is my conversation with John Verveke. Welcome to STOA. Today I will be speaking with John Verveke. John Verveke is an assistant professor in cognitive psychology and cognitive science at the University of Toronto. His research um, is designed to bring a bridge between science and spirituality, and he's especially interested in the meaning crisis. I came across his work via a talk he gave at StoicCon on the Stoic view from above. Actually, thanks so much for joining. Oh, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Great. Maybe we can start by asking what about what you are fundamentally interested in. It seems like you are especially interested in tackling the this problem of meaning. Yes. Like you could say a bit about that. The idea, the central idea that uh, uh, this sort of begins with is the uh, is the idea that our cognition um, is um, a self organizing adaptive process, and that it's very, in that sense, it's very dynamical in nature. And key idea that comes with that is the very processes that make us intelligently adaptive also make us prone to self-deceptive, self-destructive behavior. And so that means that, this is not a surprise, but now you, you can be crowded. You know, the, the, uh, the proclivity towards self-deceptive, uh, self-destructive behavior is a universal. Um, and in that sense, um, human beings through all, you know, times and places have come up with practices for trying to address uh, that capacity for self-deception. Uh, and because what I was talking about, our adaptivity is this dynamical system. It's not so much about having, you know, belief states. It's about the way in which you're dynamically coupled to the environment, the way that you are, the way brain and body are coupled together, the way brain and environment, uh, the way that embodied brain is coupled to the environment. So when I say that that, that, that you're prone to self-deception, those coupling processes, the way you're connected to your body, mm-hmm. the way you're connected to the world, the way you're connected to other people uh, comes under threat, right? So you start to lose touch. You start to think about how we use, we lose touch with reality and we're, we're not as close to people as we should be. We lose all this connection, right? So what happens is what cultures have developed is they've developed sets of practices for addressing this perennial threat to self-deception. And you have to do a lot of different kinds of practices. You have to put together uh, what I sometimes call an ecology of practices that have certain mm-hmm. checks and balances and direct, because your cognition actually works in multiple ways. And so you need multiple kinds of interventions, multiple strategies coordinated in, in sort of a da- dynamical evolving fashion because your cognition is dynamical. Now, that being said, um, what we, if you'll allow me this word, I, those ecologies of practices, right? Uh, and the way they can alleviate uh, our proclivities for self-deception. I, I want to call that, that's what wisdom does. That's what it is to cultivate wisdom. So universally, cultures have ways of uh, generating and curating and evolving ecologies of practices that allow us to overcome self-deception and enhance that connectivity. I was talking about that sense of connection, 
right? To oneself, to the world, and to other people. Now, the problem for, the problem for us is what cultures typically have is they have a worldview that makes sense of those practices, fits them in to the ontology, you know, tells people how to model the world and model themselves such that the practices uh, make good sense, legitimate, uh, uh, valorize the process, give a, give a big picture guidance to the ecology practice. And, and of course, the West had this for a very long time, uh, but that framework for a bunch of historical reasons has largely collapsed. So the worldview that we are now largely uh, beholden to, even though people thrash against it in various ways, various ways, is a scientific worldview. The thing about the scientific worldview is it has this very interesting property. It gives us explanations of so many things, but it gives us no explanation of how we generate explanations, how we make meaning, how we are connected, how we are you know, properly connected to ourselves, to each other, and to the world. And while this worldview is generating lots of knowledge, it's got precious little to now tell us about how to cultivate uh, wisdom. And so what happens is we have fragmentary advice, we have a therapy here, and we have a, a practice there, and people cobble together what they can in an autodidactic fashion, which is extremely dangerous because autodidactism really increases uh, the tendency towards self-deception. And so we have this autodidactic, fragmentary, often um, deeply misleading attempt to cultivate wisdom however they can, often in, like I say, a very isolated and truncated fashion. And so gotcha. that's the meaning crisis. We don't have a worldview that supports and legitimates and makes intelligible and inspirational um, an ecology of practices that situates us within um, our scientific worldview so that right, our, our quest for wisdom and meaning makes sense within that worldview and is actually guided to some degree by that worldview. And so that's the meaning crisis. So what it means is people largely have increasing senses of disconnection from themselves, from each other in the world. Um, they, they, so they lack, they lack like a nomological order. How, how are, how does, how are we properly connected to reality to put it in a simple term? Um, and then because of the scientific revolution, right? We, we no longer see the universe as having a cosmological narrative. So the, how they, their own personal narratives don't seem to fit in to the overarching cosmological narrative. And. In order to overcome self-deception, you, you have to engage in processes of self-transcendence. That's why self-transcendence is so crucial to wisdom. And yet we have no normative order that's telling us, well, this is how self-transcendence works. So most people don't know what to do, literally, if they have an anomalous experience or a mystical experience or if, what to do when they're sort of questing the self-transcendence. Right, right. So those three orders are, are just missing, a nomological, a narrative, and a normative order. And that's why you see people, I mean, the, the symptoms of this are, are, are pervasive. Like there's the loneliness issues, suicide issues, there's uh, mental health issues, but there's also stuff that you might not initially uh, see, but it makes sense. Like what's called the virtual exodus, that people want to, are spending more and more time in virtual worlds. Mm -hmm. think, and think about why they, you know, there's a book called Reality is Broken, why people are preferring, like let's take a video game as, as a prototypical example. 
what does a video game give you? It gives you a world that makes total sense. You know the rules, you know how to connect and you can connect so well that you can get into the flow state, which is by the way, predictive of how meaningful you find your life. Not only that, right? There's a narrative, there's a story in that video game and you know what it is and you know how, what, and you have a central role in it. Yeah. And then you know how to level up. <laughs> you know how to self-transcend in that world. So people go to those worlds precisely because those three orders are so present, unfortunately only in right simulated form, right? Because they're finding those orders so lacking in the so-called real world. Yeah, that makes sense. So let me see if I can try to restate that in my own words and then um, you can't tell me what I may have um, described poorly. So initially you have this thought of we are human beings with particular, say, ways of deceiving ourselves, uh, okay. often those ways of deceiving ourselves are advantageous in a particular way. But mm. yeah, we have things like confirmation bias. Exactly. exactly. But eventually these uh, ways of deceiving ourselves, um, you know, they keep us away from reality and that has its own costs. Um, in particular, we don't have false beliefs, which will bite us uh, in some way. But, and there's also a sense of potentially like a um, a loss of meaning, if you understand meaning being this connection with reality, seeing past you. Yeah. yeah. So then you have institutions like religion developing to solve this problem. Mm. Um, and then for a variety of different reasons, today we are in a world where science uh, and this sort of scientific institution is, is becoming a lot more powerful. And that has all, all, all kinds of goods, but it doesn't provide uh, as much of a sense of who we are, why we have the purposes we do, why, what legitimates those purposes. And th this is sort of the vacuum uh, that, that you touched on. You know, there are a variety of different uh, ways in which we might ha have a uh, purpose. Um, That's good. Cool. So yeah, you, yeah, you, you're that it's, yeah, it's sort of purpose, depth, intelligibility. There, it's not all one thing, like there's these, yeah, there's this sense. dimensionality uh, to, to, and, and also there is this ability to, uh, to guide you in the cultivation of, like I say, well-functioning, uh, ecologies of practice for dealing with the myriad and complex and evolving ways in which we deceive ourselves precisely because our cognition is constantly evolving, how it is making sense of the world, mm -hmm. the deceptive, the, the processes of deception also, uh, do that as well. So we need, we, yeah, we. What, what is all, what religions used to do is they used to do that, um, um, as you said, comprehensively, but they are, religions pretend as if they don't change, but they actually have mechanisms of evolution by which they're constantly reconfiguring, right? Uh, the, their ecology of practices. Um, and so I want to, I just want to make sure that that temporal developmental dimension is also added to the yeah, picture yeah. we're talking about. Practice Stoicism with Stoa. Stoa combines the ancient philosophy of Stoicism with meditation in a practical meditation app. It includes hundreds of hours of exercises, lessons, and conversations to help you live a happier life. Here's what our users are saying. I'm new to Stoicism and wanted to dive deeper with guidance. This is it. I love the meditations. I've practiced meditations with other apps, but this just seems to be more impactful. Life changer. With Stoa, you can really get a sense of how to take yourself out of your thoughts and get a sense of how to handle different, difficult situations. 
Find it available for free download in the Play Store and App Store. So I think we'll I think we'll probably come back to this larger problem, but it'd be useful to jump into one kind of practice, um, which is the view from above. Sure, is how I found your work, um, and in short form, and when you do the view from above, which uh, is a practice the Stoics took from the Pythagoreans, I believe, you what you're doing is you are changing how you perceive the world along different dimensions. So you, uh, instead of seeing yourself, you know, just occupying this room, you imagine I'm actually a much part of, of a greater whole, I'm a part of a city, I'm a part of a nation, I'm a part of the earth, I'm a part of the universe, and you step back into a much larger third person perspective. And then you right. can do that along time um, and uh, potentially other ways as well. Um, so yeah. this is this is a main idea of the view from above. What are on your view, what are you doing when you engage in this kind of practice? So let's be really clear for the listeners that um, although of course you're using statements to explain it, that's not what you're doing in the view from above, right? You're not sort of just running through those statements. Uh, you're actually doing this, you know, you're imagining it. So it's very important that you're engaging. Uh, um, well, let's talk about it now. In addition to your propositional learning, your propositional knowing, your, no, your knowledge of facts, uh, uh, your, your, your knowledge that something is the case, like that a, a cat is a mammal. And um, right, that's propositional knowing. And the way in which you sort of grasp that, the way it motivates you, like directs your behavior is perhaps a better way of putting it. The way it directs your behavior is the proposition knowing creates sets of beliefs. And a lot of our behavior is dictated by our beliefs. And that's important. But when you're doing the view from above, you're moving to uh, three other kinds of knowing that I talk about, the, the procedural and the perspectival and the participatory. Let's do the procedural first. Um, that's knowing how to do something, right? That's knowing how to catch a baseball. That's knowing how to swim, right? And if, let's talk about why that's important first. You may know that there is a view from above. That's not the same as knowing how to get to the view from above. Uh, that's, so what the procedural knowledge gives us is it doesn't give us belief, it, gets a, it gives us skills. We gotta get a skill. And so part of what you're doing in um, the view from above is you're training a procedural ability to direct your attention. You're learning skills of how to redirect your attention and, right, and make use of your, basically your working memory. Now that's important, but you're all. But what you're also doing is you're moving into we you you we you literally use the language. You're moving into perspectival knowing. So think about we use that word a lot. So we should stop and, and and sort of think here a little bit more carefully. Well, what is a perspective, right? Well, the problem is we can equivocate. Sometimes we use perspective just to mean a person's sets of beliefs or opinions, and that's not what we're talking about here because that's purely propositional. We're talking about what you have on me right now, right? You have a let's say a visual attentional per and also an auditory perspective. Okay. So what is, that, what is that doing for you? Well, what that's doing for you is it's, 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 um, it's doing what I call a salience landscape. It's salience is how things stand out. So certain things are being foregrounded and standing out. Other things are being backgrounded. There's patterns of obviousness. Now it's obvious to you what you can do, right? And how you can interact, it's, right? And there's also patterns of attraction. So what, what, what perspectival knowing does is it gives you kind of your here now uh, topography of attraction and obviousness, which we, we, is so, well, it's so obvious and attractive to us that we, it's almost transparent to us. We don't, we don't pay attention to the fact of how we're doing this landscaping with our perspectival knowing. 
but we do pick up on it when we try it, when we, when we say, for example, try to take somebody else's perspective. And what you do there is, and notice you have to know how to redirect your attention and reconfigure, you know, figure and ground, background and background, reconfigure your patterns of obviousness and attractiveness. So you can start to see what it would be like to be me. Right. Is that, is that, is that, is that taking so that that's perspectival knowing and perspectival knowing what, what it's doing is it's like I say, it's creating these patterns of salience and attraction and obviousness, which is it's, these are all experiential ways in which decisions about what is relevant are being made for you. Right. So relevant meaning, what should you pay attention to? What matters for you? Right. And how should you interact with it? And so your, your, your perspectival awareness gives you basically your like I said, your sense of here now and what's, what's, what's attractive and what's obvious. This all goes into, so if, if what we care about our propositions is whether or not they're true and what we care about our skills is whether or not they, they're powerful, whether or not they fit, whether or not they work, right? Yeah. What we care about our perspectives is whether or not they give us a sense of presence, where the sense of presence is that salience landscaping that I've been describing. And you know that this is really matters to people. Let's turn back to something I just mentioned. Think about virtual, like the virtual world and games, video games. The, the quest is very often to try and create a sense of presence because that is, that really makes the game more real to people. It's not the same thing as having beliefs. It's not the same thing as just like have their skill, right? You, you have to shape how they're, right? How they're salience landscaping. And then they get, they get patterns of attraction and obviousness a sense of here and now and what it's like to be in that world. And that's all crucial. The next kind of knowing is uh, the participatory knowing. This is the knowing uh, that is involved, how you identify with things. So this is how you know your body. You, you don't just have beliefs about your body and you don't just have skills about your body and you don't just have sort of, uh, uh, you know, your, your perspectival awareness. You actually identify, you inhabit, you live through your body. You know it by identifying it. The same, this is also the way you know your culture, right? You, 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 it's become part of your identity. So if, if you know, like if you do a propositional know, knowledge, basically through inferential inference and language, right? And you do procedural knowledge is, you know, like I say, it's basically through your cognitive skill. Perspectival knowing is knowledge by being able to enter into a particular state of consciousness, knowing what it's like to be me, knowing what it's like to be drunk, knowing what, right? Knowing what yeah, it's like yeah. to be here now in that way. And then the yeah. participatory knowing is knowing not with the machinery of the self. You know, you, it's the way you know something because, because of the way you have become a, a different kind of self in relationship to it. So typically this is how you will also, you know, lo, know somebody that is your beloved, somebody that you deeply love because you don't just have beliefs about them and skills directed at them and a perspective aware of them. You actually bind how your identity is forming to how, right, you are knowing them. So in participatory knowing, your self-knowing and your knowing of the other are sort of stereoscopically fused together. And, th and this is important because this is sort of the foundational knowing. This is the knowing by which you are always doing the following. So you're always coming into a situation and you're assuming an identity and you're assigning identities out in the world, right? So right now. Uh, you're an interviewer and I'm an interviewee. That's, that's the identities that uh, yeah. taken up the roles. Right. And so that is, that is the basic way in which you and the environment are coupled together. So that, that 
And notice how it's both an identity you're, you're assuming and a way in which you're identifying me, and those are just fused together. Like you can't pull it apart and have your identity sort of separate from the identity you're giving me. They're co-determining. Yes, yeah, they're co-dependent in a way. Right, okay, so now let's go back. So in the view from above, right, you're, it's not primarily about trying to change your belief. That's in fact the, the power. We're gonna talk about this because you're trying to bring about a transformation and the work of, uh, of uh, brilliant work of both Ali Paul and uh, Agnes Kellard, for reasons I'll go over in a few minutes, you can't, you can't infer or reason your way through fundamental transformations, right? You know, fundamental developmental changes. So what's happening in the view from above is you're first getting people to practice a set of skills, procedural skills. And then what are those skills directed towards doing? Changing the perspectival knowing. Well, what does the perspectival knowing do? Well, as I said, it changes yeah, the salience landscape. Well, when I change that, what might I be doing? Well, what I might be doing is, if you'll allow me the metaphor that's actually being enacted, is to change the space in which my identity is forming, in which my self is developing, so that I can become a new kind of self. Right? And so yeah. the, view, the view from above is not directed primarily towards changing your beliefs. It's, to, it's primarily directed towards giving you skills that then help change right? Help change your perspectival and participatory knowing. By the way, and that reverberates back because as I change my capacity for identification and as I change my situational awareness and perspectival knowing, that also affords me now learning new skills. So I sort of go up to the view from, I get a set of skills that take me up. I can undergo some transformation and then that makes possible new, new ways of identifying, new ways, uh, new, new capacities for situational awareness different mm -hmm. fundamental changes of what I find relevant. And then that means I can now cultivate new skills. And then after I'm activating those new skills from a new identity, with, from a new identity and a new perspective, that will fundamentally change uh, beliefs that are otherwise not directly changeable by me. Yeah, so when you start the practice, you um, are building this skill. Yeah. And as you um, say, take a perspective of that's quite a lot larger, um, this, this third person's perspective, you might notice what seems important to you, seems even more so, and the trivial might fall away. So you, in that way, you might be paying more attention to specific yeah, thinkers yeah. of your life. Um, well, let me, let me a lot more for you. Yeah, um, let me show you one area where the perspectival and the participatory really kick in, mm -hmm. which is what, what, what you're gesturing towards. So if I do the view from above, what will often happen is my own, my own egocentric perspective will lose, right? It will lose its sort of unquestioned authority. Yeah. So that egocentrism and all the biasing that comes from, remember our original point is self-deception, all the biasing that comes from the egocentrism, right, is revealed. And, right, and the, 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 the sense that I had that, that, that egocentric framework is sort of the only way things can be is challenged. And what happens is if I can now, I now, the challenge is that an existential challenge. I now face this issue. Oh, well, there, right. The egocentric perspective is not absolute. There, there is another way of, right, being in the world. And then that opens up this possibility, this challenge. Can I move to a sense of self, a sense of agency? that is not bound anymore to that egocentric perspective? Can myself grow so that I have a less egocentric identity? 
Yeah. I think the philosopher religion, John Hick, I don't know if you know of his work, but he has a phrase. I know of his work and I, I, I read his work and I talk about his work. So yes, gotcha. I do. Okay, cool. <laughs> I read enough of your work then, otherwise I probably would have known this. Um, but he has a, one of his views of, you know, the fundamental aspect of religion is that you are moving from ego-centeredness to this reality. To to ontocentrism, which is, takes us back again, getting more in contact uh, with uh, with reality. Yeah, that's right. So you you change your um, this is where the participatory bit comes in. You change your sense of identity to something much larger to yourself. It might, in some sense, be your community or the cosmopolis, but it could also be potentially like quite larger than that, like you, uh, right? Reality and, itself, and, the way things it might are. Be, yes, and it might be a self that you're aspiring to, a wiser self. But notice how until you go through that perspectival participatory shift, you don't know what it's going to be like, okay. right? This, and this is the point that L.A. Paul and uh, Agnes Kellard makes. You, know, you don't know what a perspective is like until you are in it, right? And you don't know what that identity is going to be like until you're capable of living it. So you, what, 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 so let's say I'm here. I'm in the egocentric perspective and I did. As long as I stay in that perspective, I can't, right? I don't know what it is I'm missing, right? Because I don't know what it's like to be in a non-egocentric perspective. And I don't know, I also don't know sort of I, what, 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 what order of preferences and what set of values I'm going to have until I, uh, until I acquire that larger identity. Now, what that means is, right, you, you can't use sort of standard decision matrix. Uh, decision theory. Yeah, set, no, yeah, you can't do, do a sort of expected value calculation. Right, because, yeah, I, I lost the word decision theory. Decision came up, but not theory, which is, that's really worrying for a philosopher and scientist. The word theory disappeared for a second. Uh, anyways. It's um, not so yeah, bad. <laughs> um, it's less theory. So, so you, you don't, so I, I, don't, I don't know the probabilities because I'm ignorant, because this is not a matter of being able to state propositions in my head. Of course I can, we're doing this now. We're stating propositions. That's not the same as knowing how to get into that perspective, knowing what it's like to be in that perspective, becoming the kind of person I'm going to become if I want to form an identity around that new perspective. So I don't know the probabilities and I don't know the utilities. I can't infer. There is nothing that I can use to infer my way through there, right? So you can't go through this transformation in, in, in an inferential fashion. Now, here's a key point I want to make, and this is especially important uh, for uh, Agnes Keller. She said, look, we have to include these non-inferential developmental processes in our account of rationality. If we say, no, no, rationality, we so sort of have an enlightenment model of rationality, right? I mean, enlightenment in the European historical period sense. Yeah, of course. Which, right, which is, you know, Okay, what rationality is, it's, it's the logical governance of inference to alter belief. And when we do that well, we're being rational. Okay, if, if, if you say that, then you say this process that we're describing, because it's non-inferential, must not be a rational process. Now you're really, really screwed. Because the aspiration to, ration, to, be, to becoming rational is exactly this kind of process. Right. If I'm not very rational and I'm trying to get to the identity and perspectival abilities of a rational person, I can't infer my way to there. Right. See the point? The process of aspiring to rationality, if we say that rationality is totally just argumentative in nature, inferential in nature, then the process of aspiring to rationality is not itself a rational process. 
And now you're really, really messed up because you know what I cannot do? I cannot, I, I have no justification for, uh, for telling you to become more rational because the process I'm telling you to engage in is initially an irrational process. It's not one I could engage in for rational reasons on, yes. on this view. Yes, on this view, because you can't, you can't, right? But so what you need to do is you need to be able to broaden the notion, and this is what I'm going to propose to you. You need to broaden the notion of rationality so it can include what, this is what Caleb calls proleptic rationality. These processes by which we aspire to perspectives and participatory identities we do not currently have. And that's what all of education, all of the cultivation of wisdom, all of the cultivation of rationality, all require this. So here's what I propose to you. And I think this is more in consonant uh, with there being multiple kinds of knowing and with the ancient wisdom traditions like Stoicism, for example. And this goes back to the original point I make that we should think of rationality not in terms of just inferential processing. We should think of rationality as present wherever I have a practice or set of practices that is systematically reliable for helping me deal with self-deception. Mm -hmm. And insofar as the view from above, and we just walk through how it could systematically and reliably help me deal with self-deception, insofar as the view from above is helping me to do that, even though it's not an argument by any means, it is a deeply rational process because it is helping me reduce self-deception and it is helping me to proleptically aspire towards becoming a more rational person. Yeah, excellent. Yeah, that, I think that makes sense. I'm not totally sure how much I buy the transformative experience is type line, but I think I understand uh, like how, how this how this works. Well, I mean, the, uh, yeah, uh, well, about buying it. I mean, the thing about this is we've got lots of empirical evidence, right? So this is not just a philosophical argument. We've got all the evidence from construal level theory that if I get you to move perspectively this way, you will actually become less biased. You become more creative, oh, yeah, you become yeah. more open. You, uh, you've also got, you've got the work of Igor Grossman, right? Um, so you get people to describe a problem they're in. And what they'll do is they'll assume a first person perspective, think about what we've been talking about, and their prototypical default identity, right? And then they can't solve this problem. And then you say to them, I want you to try and describe this problem from a third person perspective as if you were somebody else. They do that, right? And then what they have is they get insight into, right? They get insight into the problem that they couldn't get before. And this is something you can't infer your way into also is an insight. Yeah, I, I totally think that's, I guess I think that's right. That, that um, construal level theory uh, is probably true. Uh, and there are, you could get different insights from, from taking different perspectives. I think I am less confident in the idea that this is something you couldn't reason yourself into. You, I guess like this sort of line is, is this is just like another kind of uncertainty and yeah, it can be hard to make decisions like this. Um, but well, I, you know, I mean, I mean, well, I guess what I, I guess, I guess the pushback on your pushback would be, um, I take seriously that you, most of your knowing, and this is what, you know, cutting edge cognitive science is actually arguing. Most of your knowing is not inferentially driven. I mean, I mean a lot of your behavior, I mean, this advertising depends on the fact that a lot of your behavior isn't driven by your, by your beliefs. It's driven by the, it's driven by your patterns of attraction and obviousness. So advertisers work to make things attractive and obvious to you, not convince you about the beliefs, uh, the truth of certain beliefs. They sometimes do that, 
But most, you know that most of the stuff, you know that most of the stuff you're being shown in commercials is not true. Drinking this alcohol will not make you more attractive or most so, more socially acceptable, right? In, in a way that will gain more sexual partners. That doesn't track that way. But nevertheless, the commercial has, has made the product more attractive to you. And right. And it's made it sort of, it, it, and it made, it's made it more salient to you. That's why you buy the product. So I take seriously, right. That a lot of uh, what drives your behavior, I'm not denying that your beliefs don't drive your behavior. You understand that. Of course they do. But I'm saying that a lot of your behavior is driven by things other than your beliefs, which means definitionally it's driven in a non-inferential fashion. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. That seems right to me. Um, uh, what you pay attention to matters quite a lot. Uh, what you pay attention to and what you identify with. Yes. This is, yeah, those are the two bit, the perspectival bit and the participatory yeah, yeah. bit. Yeah. Um, excellent. One piece you touch on in your uh, talk was that you have one worry when you're doing the practice, like the view from above, yeah. that you might end up actually divorcing yourself from things that you thought were meaningful. Mm. So if you take the you know, very, a very cosmic perspective where you realize all things are finite, all things will come to pass. Things like relationships might seem less important. Mm -hmm. um, how do you, how do you think about avoiding this kind of problem? Yeah, I think that's important. So there's two, there's two thinkers that have influenced me the most on that. One is um, Thomas Nagel and his, uh, the idea from the view from nowhere, which is sort of the ultimate view from above. Right, and he he argues that we carry around a model of objectivity that is that is at least um, identified with. I don't know if it's identical to, but it's, it's identified with this kind of you know perspectival knowing that's the view from nowhere, which is really not a any kind of perspective. And so, um, and but he says that's sort of our notion of objectivity, and we can move to that. And then he he brings up what he calls the possibility of the absurd, which is. I think a, a more intense version of what you're pointing to. I can move to I can move towards this sort of all all encompassing godlike perspective, and it, from that godlike perspective, um, the doings of mortals can lose their significance. Now that can be very valuable because a lot of the doings of mortals, <laughs> right, um, deserve to be criticized because they can be petty and small minded and vicious. But you know the doings of mortals are also the compassionate concern for your child right? The taking care of the planet more properly. And so if you start to become unconcerned with the petty concerns of the mortals, um, yes, you can very much, right? The, 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 the perspective in which you live your life can seem absurd or irrelevant or insignificant from this cosmic perspective. Bellman argues something similar, which is as I constantly move, right, up this sort of ladder of perspective taking, I become more and more distanced from the, the, the machinery, my agency that actually couples me to the world. And so he, he calls this like the primitive problem of Hamlet. I, I keep stepping back and looking at lower order perspectives and I, it just, it, it just, you know, it just robs me. It just undermines my agency. I lose agency. I become, I become completely indecisive and disconnected the way Hamlet does. And meanwhile, people are dying all around Hamlet. Right. And, yeah. Um, so I, I think that uh, both of them, I think that's, just, they, they're, they're not saying exactly the same thing. But their arguments converge on the same place, different features of the same place. Bellman is uh, emphasizing a loss of agency and what he calls the reflectiveness gap. And 
And Nagel is uh, is offering a, a loss of a sense of uh, of, of connectedness, right? Uh, because that's what the sense of insignificance is. What I do doesn't matter, right? Um, and so that's in his discussion of the absurd. So I take that very, very seriously. And the thing is, uh, many thinkers across different traditions have. Um, now, this is not something that I have found within the ancient Stoic tradition. And so this, this, this is more of a stretch uh, if I wanted to include it within the Stoic tradition. But um, this is where I turn to Spinoza. Uh, now, Spinoza is obviously deeply influenced by the Stoic tradition in a lot of important ways. Um, and what I find in Spinoza is something that um, is also deeply analogous to practices and experiences I've had within a Buddhist and a Taoist framework. But Spinoza talks about this possibility in, uh, when he talks about scientia uh, intuitiva. And the thing is, when you're reading the ethics, like you, you have to read the ethics like Lexio Divina. You have, to, you have to read it and resonate it. You have to spend time. You have to study, if you'll allow me, religiously, right? You don't just read the ethics in an argumentative fashion. And, and because that's not what Spinoza is doing. He's patterning the ethics on, you know, Proclus's elements of theology, which was a Neoplatonic thing, which was designed to take you through these kinds of transformative uh, processes we've been talking about. So you read through the ethics and you're going to get, and he's talking about various things and he talks about scientia intuitiva, this, this way of knowing that's deeply connected to blessedness. But what, what's supposed to happen is you're supposed to get it not just in what he's referring to, you're supposed to get it in the reading of the text. So, so what happens, right? When you're reading uh, the ethics is you get, you get, I don't want to, you can get, so I'm trying to make my language very carefully here, right? You can get to this state where you, you see the pole of the argument in each premise and you see how each premise fits into the whole argument. Very much like you see the whole word in order to dis disambiguate the letters and then you see the letters within the word or you hear the notes within the whole music, but the whole music, you know, informs how you're hearing each note, that kind of gestalt featural uh, fusion that human beings are actually, we, in fact, we rely on that in order to do some of our most adaptive problem solving. And so the idea is I can get to a state where, right? And then the thing is when you, because you're doing, you're doing the ethics, right? You've got the, you've got the huge ontological perspective of part one, you know, of God and nature. And then you have, you know, the, the human scale perspective uh, of, the, uh, of the cultivation of wisdom and blessedness. But what happens is you get this state that is like, it's, it's, and I don't want to sound like a Zen Cohen, but it's simultaneously the view, you know, the, the view from above and the view from right here, right now. Um, and right. So the, 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 the way in which the broader perspective can undermine, right. The small perspective yeah, is, I see. is lost because they're, they're not. They're not they're 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 not juxtaposed to each other. In fact, they are completely interaffording and interpenetrating. And then, with Vellman, he he turns to the Taoist tradition. He says the answer is we need a state of being related to the world, right? That gives us both, right? So, so the problem with agency is you don't right is you don't want you don't the answer to being Hamlet isn't to become what. Wellman calls a wanton, which is completely impulsive because then you lose flexibility because you're just acting chaotically. So you need a state 
that gives you the involved connectedness to the world, but the flexibility like that you have, like when you're Hamlet. And so there's a state that we can achieve that seems to do that as well. This is something I've done a lot of work on, and this is the flow state. Because in the flow state, you are very deeply coupled to the environment, but you also are experiencing tremendous insight, tremendous creativity, tre tremendous flexibility, tremendous adaptivity. So like as a martial artist, I'm trying to get into the flow state because keeping me deeply immersed in your presence, there's the perspective of a language, right? But I, right, I'm not acting mechanically or automatically. Instead of what's happening is I, 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 I it's like, it's like, well, I call it an insight cascade. I'm getting a, a flurry of insights. That's why one way to induce flow is to, to spar or to play jazz. Mm -hmm. So what you're getting in the flow state is you're getting something that again, gives you both the flexibility of the higher order, but it gives you the connectedness of the lower order. And so um, what's interesting is both of those are available to us. And then in, in the Buddhist and um, Taoist traditions, when you know, they come together, for example, in something like Zen, that's what you get, right? You basically get a flow state that's also Gantiantuitiva. This is Prajna. I, I've got the, I've got the, you know, in like in Skensi Intuitiva, I have the cosmological interpenetrating with the personal, but that's not just sort of a static state I'm in. It's putting me into a constant flow state with the world. And so the fact that uh, both of these states are uh, available to people and can be cultivated uh, says to me that it's possible that we could bring that in uh, to connect it with, right? things like the view from above, so that there's an appropriate normative checks and balances. Yes, do, for, do for the view from above, but pursue stiencia intuitiva. And, right, and then right. Don't, do the, don't do this just sort of sitting statically in your chair. Do, learn how to do this like, like a Taoist master within a flow state and engagement in the world. So what would this look like in practice? You know, suppose I heard one way of understanding what you uh, said, um, that one thing this brings to mind for me is that you can imagine while doing the V for above, suppose you're just sitting, um, you decide to picture um, and then picture yourself and then enlarge your, your perspective. But while you do this, you may want to continuously monitor yourself in the way you would as if you're just, you know, sitting, focusing on your breath and focusing on your sensations. Okay. Um, and I imagine it, when you do those two things, perhaps you can, um, you can find yourself and avoid, maybe perhaps like avoid the view from nowhere, inhabit both perspectives at once. One thing I do when I teach my students uh, how to practice this is you, I teach them to, uh, when you can see this actually within many traditions, let me just stress. So what, I, I, first of all, I teach them a, a meditative practice like Vipassana, so they learn how to go very deeply inside. If you want to put, I'll, if you'll allow me those metaphors, right? And then I teach them a contemplative practice like meta, in which you learn to really open off your attention out into the depths, right? And mm -hmm. it's not just your attention, it's the processes, it's, the, it's how you're identifying with things. So we're, we're engaging the perspectival and the participatory in both directions. So you, you teach people both of those and then how to do them deeply. And then you teach them how to cycle, you teach them the cycle. So for example, as I'm inhaling, my attention is contemplatively extending out and then as I exhale, I let my attention meditatively move in towards the center. And then I cycle between the two, cycling between the two. 
so and 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 what happens is if it, for a long time you just do it's just like this if you all right just back and forth yeah just and, they, and then it starts to be like this right and parallel and then it goes yeah. like this all at once now what you then also do is i teach my students also tai chi and in tai chi you have the two eyes you're always looking in right and you're also tiger eyes looking out and so what you do is you, you practice doing this with movements. You practice getting into the flow state. Now, if you're doing those sets of practices together, you get very, you get much better at getting into like the Skitsi intuitiva or the, the Prajna state, you know, where it's cosmological and personal at the same time, while also learning how to bring that into a, 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 a flow uh, relationship with the environment. So that's how I teach people. Excellent. Yeah, that, that's, that's really helpful. Um, last question, I suppose. So going back to the very initial discussion of the meaning crisis, what is all, what is how, what we just talked about, how, how does that inform, you know, how you think of building out institutions for wisdom and practices for uh, building wisdom going forward? Well, I guess what I've tried to do is I try to exemplify what I think the, the answer is we need something, um, uh, I mean, you'll forgive me. I mean, my, my series is 50 hours long and so it's a long argument. So, um, but these sets of practices, uh, notice there's two aspects to our discussion. We're trying to see how, how, how to cultivate them. We need how to cultivate them. How, how do they work? Right. But notice what I tried to do. Also, I tried to connect it up to cognitive science and explain it connected to the scientific worldview so that the processes that I'm invoking right? They, they're not woo-woo. They don't, they don't hang free in some, you know, unintelligible fashion from our scientific worldview. They, they, they're coherent yes. with it. They, they make good sense of it. And so what we need is we need a combination of that. We need more of the cognitive science of meaning-making, wisdom cultivation. That's what's happening. That resituates all of those things back into the scientific worldview, while also helping engineer and reverse engineer sets of practices. And notice what I gave you. I gave you an ecology of practices and how they sort of, you know, have to be coalesced together in a self-organizing fashion in order for them to get sort of optimal functionality. And, and so what you're going to see is you're going to see something like where you're going to have something like, you know, what Buddhism and Taoism were or Christianity. You're going to have something that is the language by which we constellate and curate. Uh, the ecology of practices, but it is going to be in deep connection, dialogue with the language of cognitive science that explains how and why it works. And you're going to get a reflective equilibrium between them. If we do that, then, and, and, and there's, I have to say, I, there's so much more to say on both those sides. I'm just, oh yeah, I'm I'm really, really quick here. If we do that really well, then we can bring back, right, uh, um, the cultivation of wisdom which is the way in which we respond to our personal issues of meaning loss. But then, but we can situate that right in, in, into a worldview that makes sense of it and legitimates it and guides it. So we also, so we don't have to do it in an autodidactic fashion. We can have a shared scientific framework that we can all make use of. And that will also help us to constellate uh, communities of practice together. And I think doing that, is what we need to do in order to respond to the meaning crisis. Thanks for listening to Stoic Conversations. If you found this conversation useful, please give us a rating on Apple, Spotify, or whatever podcast platform you use, and share it with a friend. 
We are just starting this podcast, so every bit of help goes a long way. And I'd like to thank Michael Levy for graciously letting us use his music. Do check out his work at ancientliar.com. And please get in touch with us at Stoa at stoameditation.com if you ever have any feedback or questions. Until next time.